Education spending, tax policy, and the expansion of Uber are some of the issues lawmakers are grappling with in Jefferson City. State Representative Travis Fitzwater has a lot to say on the trajectory of those issues and how they'll fare in the last few weeks of session. The Calway County Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And joining us through the magic of radio in the St. Louis Public Radio studios in Jefferson City, Missouri, we have as our special guest today... State Representative Travis Fitzwater. And thank you very much for joining us from afar. Before we ask you oodles of tough questions about your background and the issues of the day... Will you just let our listeners know what your district encompasses? Sure. It's it's about half of Callaway County, which includes Fulton and Holt Summit and Mocaine, which is right in the heart of Missouri, and a little bit of Jefferson City. And unfortunately, as you told us before the show, it does not include the beautiful city of Avaz. Is that correct? It does not include the beautiful <laughs> city of Avaz. And I, I love that you're about to admit who who taught you how to say that correctly. Uh, that would be the, the that would be you, because in a show that I had with uh, then Majority Leader uh, Todd Richardson, I called it Oxvas, and yeah. several people. <laughs> said I was saying it incorrectly. And actually, uh, one of the people who, who mentioned it actually sends his, his child to a music class that my child goes to. So it was a, uh, it was a, a strange uh, thing right there. Well, it's just terrific. like it's just like the gravelway uh, yeah. road in in the St. Louis area. Where even on the Google Maps, the voice totally mangles it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. We, we have a lot of weird uh, city names. So sure. b- rather than get into an hour-long discussion <laughs> on the pronunciation of a boss. Although it would be really riveting. Um, it would be so riveting. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you did before you ran for st- the state legislature, and anything people want to know about the political career of, of Travis Fitzwater. Yeah. Sure. Well, I moved to Missouri in 2006 from South Carolina. I got a degree in political science at a small liberal arts school, very similar to Westminster, actually, and uh, moved to Missouri in 2006. My parents moved out here in 2002, and uh, my dad hired me to work for the Missouri Pharmacy Association, do some marketing and membership management stuff, and and was involved a little bit in the capital, but not in a, in a large way for the association. So kind of got my feet wet, but I was much more focused on nonprofit management until I ran for office when Jeannie, <clears throat> Jeannie Riddle, who was my state rep at the time, she decided to run for the Senate. And out of the blue, I wasn't expecting this. I hadn't told anybody I hadn't had any interest in running for a seat. Um, but she called me out of the blue when she decided to run for Senate, and, and she asked me to run for her House seat, which was kind of a door that just flung open for us. And my wife was uh, scared to death about it, um, but we talked about it over a weekend and had to make a quick decision, and it seemed like the right thing to do. And um, so here we are, very, very thankful. Jeannie's been a great mentor for me, and um, it's really been an honor to serve in this way. 
Your your first race to run for the House, I, I, I sort of assumed since Callaway County has become more and more Republican over the years, mm-hmm. was going to be a reasonably easy race. But it turned out there was kind of a curveball thrown in when the Democratic nominee withdrew and Gracia Backer ended up being the Democratic nominee. And she was she represented probably not the same seat because of redistricting, but a similar seat in the legislature for a pretty long time. Yeah, so probably. that race ended up being a lot more competitive than a lot of people expected. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, she represented a good 90 percent of the district, if not more, that uh, that we, we both ran for. And I, I tell you what, that was a day that I got a little bit nervous when I found out that was happening. Um, Gracia was a significant challenge compared to uh, the gentleman that was on the ballot before her. And um, it became a very, very tough race. We worked very, very hard. And uh, Gracia was obviously had a had a profile that was statewide. Um, and so it was it was a tough race. And um, you know, fortunately, and thankfully, we pulled it out. Now, um, that contest, though, and actually, I covered Gracia Becker from time to time. She made an uh, unsuccessful bid for lieutenant governor about Mm-hmm. 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but did that experience uh, influence how you've conducted yourself or how you've dealt with fellow Republicans or Democrats in the state house? I think I think most experiences that we have kind of kind of mold the way that you you do things. And I think that was something I learned there is that hard work in Missouri just really pays off and it means a lot to Missourians. And not that Gracia didn't work hard, but we we knocked twelve thousand doors uh, around there in in about a three month time frame. We got out and we we knew the issues that were important to Missourians, and this was a great learning experience for us too. Because I think when we were when we were at um, forums or debates or whatever, you know, the, the small little town halls they would hold for candidates, we felt like we really had a message that was hitting home for people. While Gracia was speaking on things that that maybe weren't priorities for folks in our district, and I think that. That gave us a little bit of a leg up, um, but she worked very, very hard. Uh, we both did, and I just feel like we had a strategy that was uh, really paid off in the long run. So um, now that you're in your second term in the Missouri House, what are some big issues that you have taken on since you you came into the legislature? What are some bills that you're, you're focusing on, either by sponsoring them or by playing a big role in the debate? And and just more generally, how do you see yourself? In the House, what do you think your role is in the Republican caucus? Yeah, uh, so a couple of things that are important issues to me that I feel like I've wanted to be involved in. One is the the um, transportation network companies, the TNCs like Uber and Lyft. That's been a just just kind of a discussion that's very fascinating to me. So I've enjoyed being involved. I actually went to the Jefferson City Council and and uh, and spoke in favor of them changing their ordinances to allow. Um, Uber and, and Lyft into town while we were waiting on statewide regulations a couple months ago. I was really excited to do that um, and excited to see Kirk Matthews, who's handling the state representative, Kirk Matthews, who's handling that bill, handle it so well here in the in the legislature. Um, I've really enjoyed being a part of that. Prior, priority wise for me specifically, um, I've got two bills I've filed this year that I'm excited about. One is an adult, an adult high school bill, which basically uh, is modeled after the Indiana, what Indiana has done in their state, which is they've had goodwill come in and and create these adult high schools where adults over the age of 21 who don't have a high school diploma, and there's 500,000 of them, 500,000 of them in Missouri, they can have access to a high school diploma program that's pretty rigorous. 
And then on top of that, um, they get child care because 375,000 of the 500,000 in Missouri are folks that are on food stamps and have children, uh, which is a big impediment to getting an ongoing education if you have children that, that can't be cared for while you're, while you're studying. Um, and then on top of that, these schools also will provide, provide local workforce training needs. So uh, an adult high school that goes into St. Louis would hopefully provide maybe a launch code program, you know, where you're, you're learning how to code and you're guaranteed a job when you get to the program if you successfully get through the program. Um, things like that where not only are they getting a high school diploma, which studies show your earning potential over a period of time is much better than just a GED, but you're also getting a, um, an opportunity to get uh, training in a local workforce need, which the chamber and CEOs from around our state have said is the number one priority uh, going forward for, for our economy is workforce development. Uh, the second thing is this uh, STEM curriculum I'm trying to get passed in the state that would provide a, an, an online curriculum to middle schoolers around the state um, that would show them what's available to them in STEM careers going forward. What we're finding, studies show that when students graduate from high school, only a, a small portion of them about 25% know what's available to them in career fields, especially in STEM career fields, which are our fastest growing and probably most needed areas I, to focus I, on. I want to interrupt you here. Can you explain to our listeners what STEM is? Yeah, I'm sorry. So STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. And so those are really our fast growing career fields. Um, and so we're, I'm just wanting to get this, these opportunities in front of kids so they understand what's available. I, you know, I have a nuclear plant just outside my district, but mostly employees live in my district. So these things are really important to my district and around the state. Um, but it's those fields, you know, the engineers, the mathematicians, the chemists, the scientists. Um, these folks, uh, there's a real growth in, in the needs there. And we want to lead as a, as a state in, in uh, providing the training that students need to get there. Now, your first issue that you mentioned, how would, how would those schools be paid for? I mean, and I mean, is the Goodwill in Missouri even interested, or are you looking at any type of firm that would create these schools? But how would they be paid? Sure. Well, the nonprofit, yes, the language has, uh, it would have to go through an RFP process with DESE. Um, Goodwill does it in Indiana, has done a phenomenal job. Basically, they put up the upfront, they have to put up at least $2 million in upfront capital, whoever gets the bid. And they have to, they have to um, get the locations they have to set them up. They have to have them prepared for students to come in. So and does the state pay them? The No, the $2 million comes from the nonprofit. Okay. So they have to put the upfront capital up to even be um, considered for, for these bids. The second portion of it is that most of, because of the vast majority of students that would be available for these adult high schools are on food stamps and have children, there are federal funds that help that help go to job training and um and child care for these, uh, for these folks and workforce development dollars. And so initially, the, most of the vast majority, if not all of the funding for the next couple of years would come from federal funds um, under the um, temporary assistance for needy families provisions. Now, are you concerned at all? I know Trump is talking about, make, uh, President Donald Trump is talking about making uh, major cuts, and those include many of these, uh, these types of job training programs. Um, would that kind of make it more difficult to get your provision passed or, or well the the provision is subject to appropriation so uh, you know we can as a as a budget we can we can kind of finagle those numbers a little bit but the i think the the real point would be that we have some we have temporary assistance for needy family dollars workforce dollars in a budget now that um haven't been used uh 
so there's a pot of money that's that's available to start a program like this. And when we reformed, when we reformed the um, social spending um, uh, situation at my first term, uh, when we did we overrode the governor and changed some of the provisions in the temporary assistance for needy families, we had provisions in there that would push people to job training and volunteering and getting. Um, getting certifications, and so this is exactly what we were talking about when we did that. Is we want to ensure we're we're helping people um, get a leg up in careers and and break through some ceilings they haven't been able to break through in the past, and so those those dollars have been have been building up, and so there's some there's some money available to to go directly to those programs. Where are those bills kind of in the process right now? Sure. Well, the House passed it, I believe, 141 to 10 on a bipartisan vote. Uh, the Senate just took it up last week. A Senate committee took it up last week and passed it out eight to one. Uh, it will go to the floor and have um, have a debate there. I know that Senator Kehoe is a great friend of mine, and Senator Wasson, who's going to carry it for me, have managed it very well. And they've already they've already passed a version of a uh, similar version of the adult, adult high school bill through the Senate. So hopefully, this is something that that. Um, is is just a bipartisan issue that gets done. There's a, a few minor changes I think that are going to happen in the um, Senate because we've we've spoken with Senator Jill Shoup about some concerns she has on uh, the virtual education piece. But we're going to get we're going to sit down at the table and get it worked out, and then uh, hopefully pass it back to the House, and we'll we'll finalize it and send it to the governor. So let's talk about Uber and Lyft for a moment. One of the controversies that's occurred in the St. Louis area is there is a taxicab commission that has effectively blocked Uber and I think also Lyft from entering the market. Uber, I think, is still operating here. I hear all the time of friends taking an Uber to places, but I, I don't think they're operating legally right now. It, from what I've heard from talking with Representative Matthews and others, the bill in question would basically institute a statewide regulatory structure that would, I would, I would think, wouldn't allow localities like St. Louis and Kansas City to regulate these ride-sharing companies anymore. Is that a fair summation of what what's going on here? Yeah, I would say that was fair. the 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 idea is we don't want municipalities to shut down these innovative technologies when we have a statewide framework that put put some pretty good regulations on these companies. And is amenable to those those companies to ensure that they would come here and provide the what we think is about ten thousand jobs statewide. Uh, so uh, that's the basis of it. But I would say that's pretty fair what you how you, you spoke about it. Well, I want to play devil's advocate as somebody who's yeah. kind of an uninterested party here because I don't really use Uber or Lyft very much, uh, but I don't have anything really against it. And I mention that because passions over this issue have been extremely high, depending on your perspective. Why do you see it as a problem that a, a locality like St. Louis would provide regulations for a, a, a service that's going to be used pretty dramatically within their jurisdiction? This is kind of part and parcel with a larger question of, quote unquote, local control. Sure. But I, I could imagine that many city officials here would prefer that they be the ones overseeing this rather than the state. Sure, and this is this is kind of the, the the issue we saw when I went and testified in front of Jefferson City, is you have uh, local lawyers and um, you know safety officials who have some uh, probably on some level legitimate concerns, 
Um, but this is a this is technology that's used all over the world. Um, I mean, in in huge cities around the the world, and the concerns are are ones that have been unfounded in many many cities across even across our our nation. And so, what we're trying to do as a state, as a conservative state that wants to get our economy moving forward, is we want to ensure that municipalities aren't getting in the way with um, unnecessary and archaic regulations that prevent business from moving forward in our state. And I think that's at the heart of it. As we see some municipalities that are uh, have ordinances that are onerous or can uh, keep these innovative technologies out of our state um, in unfounded ways. Uh, and we think that the unfounded ways are, uh, for example, the safety concerns when these have been these have been functioning in 40, uh, I think 38 states, I think will be the 39th state around our nation um, and provide a real, real uh, service, a real ne necessary service in our local communities. Um, that that maybe the uh, old form of uh, public transportation hasn't been providing, um, and so that's that's at the heart of it. Now, of course, playing devil's advocate here, there have been, although albeit isolated, there have been some tragic um, cases involving uh, Uber drivers who either broke the law, insulted, uh, I mean, assaulted a passenger, accidents, that sort of thing, and. Um, the critics, the St. Louis critics, some of them have been citing incidences like that, which are more likely, from their contention, to have happen in urban areas as one of the reasons why they feel there has to be these regulations. And um, then there's also the issue of, you know, I mean, the in Jeff City, the Republicans controlling the General Assembly are always beefing about federal government coming in and big footing. Sure. Is, isn't this kind of similar? Now, I'm just playing devil's advocate here to get your response. <laughs> oh, no, so. I get it. I, we, and we get these questions a lot, believe me. Um, the, the thought on it, again, is that, um, you know, you can have bad actors in taxis. You can have bad actors in, in Uber. The thing about Uber, the amazing part about the technology, if my wife, for instance, is out of town and she takes an Uber, she can send me a link to exactly where she is on a path. She can never do that on a taxi. I, I, I can literally watch where my wife is traveling if she's out of town for safety reasons to just ensure that she gets to a location safely. Um, these are these are things that technology really uh, handles in a, in a really good way. As far as the local control piece, I think the federal government and the state, this, this, we're talking about a completely different model than the state and local, uh, local area. I think the, the state, um, especially when you're seeing um, local municipalities, uh, what we, many conservatives believe are kind of stepping on the ability for folks to, to enjoy the free market, then the state ought to be involved in ensuring that the, that the market can work and that people can get access to the technologies and the, the opportunities that are available to them. Um, and uh, Uber is a, is a great example. The Uber Lyft issue is a great example of that. Well, another issue I wanted to talk about was the prescription drug monitoring program. And even though that's not an issue that you're sponsoring by yourself, Holly Rader of Sykeston, the Republican, is handling that in the House. I know it's something that you're, you're very familiar with. Sure. Um, there's been kind of a late-breaking development in the Senate, which has typically been the stumbling block for this. Senator Rob Schaff, a Republican from St. Joseph, has said he will no longer filibuster this if a provision is put in the bill that requires doctors to look at a PDMP before they prescribe anything. And that's not a provision that is without controversy among the medical profession or even some PDMP advocates. So how do you think that changes the dynamic also with the added variable that even if Senator Schaff stops filibustering this, there's no guarantee that 
other Republicans that don't like this program may stand up and try to kill it as well. Sure. And I think on a, on its face, it's encouraging for those of us who have supported a PMP, PDMP because we have healthcare providers in our districts telling us this is a crucial program for the, them to fight uh, local, local opiate abuse. But this is this is kind of if you're a political insider like us, where we kind of like this stuff, this is kind of this is where the dynamics get really interesting. Right. Where you have this political environment where um, things are constantly being um, pushed back and forth. And you have a lot of these personalities um, either stopping stuff, pushing stuff. You have all these negotiations that are happening. Um, this is kind of the end of session politics. It's kind of exciting to watch if you're into politics. Um, but I think it's on its face, it's encouraging. Uh, the point that I would be, I, I would be concerned about is if any provision that he says, oh, "I'll support it," I'll only step away and support this if you have this one provision. I kind of wonder if that's just a poison pill for the bill like you mentioned. And so the proof is really going to be on the pudding in that. Is he really stepping out of the way um, and allowing Holly's, um, uh, she's done an incredible level of work to move this bill forward. Um, if he's really allowing her to, to finish that work or if he's putting something in there that really makes it so onerous uh, as a piece of legislation that you have other uh, senators stand up and say, I just can't, I just can't stomach this. Um, is it okay if we – I'd like to shift now to the budget a bit. Sure. Because um, I know you're very familiar with what's going on. There had been predictions early on in the General Assembly. There there had been talk that some Republican leaders were bragging they were going to get this done by early April. Well, that ain't going <laughs> to happen. Um, and Now, for our listeners, it has to be done by – I think it's just the first Friday in May. So sure. it has to be to the governor by then. So just kind of your take on what's happening, what's your involvement, what do you see as the key stumbling blocks? Sure. Well, the, so what we have now are two brand new budget chairs, both in the Senate and the House. Um, this, now, Scott Fitzpatrick has been very, very, and is incredibly intelligent. He's been, he's done a great job, in my opinion, um, structuring a budget that we're all somewhat happy with, um, for the most part, really excited, especially on the K through 12 education spending piece. And I think you, you're going to see Doc Brown, who's incredibly intelligent, also um, want to kind of mold his own his own budget on that side. So I think the jury's out on it a little bit because everybody's trying to figure each other out. The House is trying to figure out the Senate and vice versa, where they're going to stand on certain issues, what the actual numbers are going to look like as it relate to where the governor stood on on his his uh, initial budget. And as especially as it relates to K through 12 funding, you know, we were really excited to put in uh, to fully fund the foundation formula, and then also on top of that, to put $36 million back into the transportation budget that significantly impacts um, public schools around our state. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see, especially after Doc Brown mentioned that um, that wasn't going to stay in, the, the fully funding wasn't going to stay in there, um, what that looks like coming back. Uh, I can't imagine they pull all of that funding, but I think you'll see an increase in K-12 funding, which is really, really an important piece. Uh, and there, there are other dynamics to it as well uh, that uh, will be very interesting. Now, the latest budget numbers, now granted it's just one month, but if you look at the trend over the last three months, uh, the budget numbers for the state actually aren't as dire as they had been at the end of 2016. Uh, you've got about three months left in the um, fiscal year. Sure. Um, but this does affect, I mean, kind of what you guys think is going to happen does affect how you craft the budget. Um, sure. Is there any talk about the fact that it looks like you might have a little more money or are people not trusting those numbers? I think from a from a conservative perspective, we're looking at it in a sense of how do we how do we do a budget based on uh, realistic assessments? And by the way, those numbers are so volatile. 
I mean, you can see you can see one day to the next where that that can change a significant way from uh, you know income tax receipts, sales tax receipts on our state. We've seen some pretty significant uh, up and ups and downs on that. And so there's no way to say in April, look, we're at four percent, and by July one or June thirtieth, we we could be at two percent. You know, last year we had a significant dip right at the end because right. the their refunds were maybe delayed a little bit. So there are a lot of dynamics to it that makes it hard, and we have to craft a budget based on the best knowledge we can. And I think from uh, Representative Fitzpatrick and the speaker's perspective, our thought is let's be as conservative as we can so we can be in a better place next year uh, and and focus on the priority issues we can deal with next year. Plus this year, you know, we we had a rough year, but we had a supplemental we just passed the other day that had $45 million in, in general revenue dollars and then another $160 million in federal and other other revenue uh, dollars, and so you know that's that general revenue piece is at least what Representative Fitzpatrick said it was the lowest it's been since he's been in. Um, so we're doing a better job kind of predicting where we are as, as an economy, um, but we need to we can't just spend because we think it's getting better. We need to be very smart about where we're putting those dollars, and I think uh, Representative Fitzpatrick has done a phenomenal job in that. Is there any possibility that the cuts to higher education that I think were put in the governor's budget, and I don't think that they changed by a significant margin, um, can be reversed by the time this is over? My, my feeling is if, if revenues are down and higher education is one of the only places in the budget with that is funded primarily with general revenue that is highly fungible, uh, higher education is just not going to come out ahead after this budget cycle. That's my observation. What What's your take on that? Well, the, from the governor's budget, it was such a significant cut. Um, yeah. You know, and I, th- I think the House came to a lower number on that. Uh, obviously, the higher ed folks were, were thrilled with that idea. But again, th- this budget process, and I'm, I'm uh, you know, into my third year, still trying to get my hands around it, but this budget process is so, um, shifts so much when it goes to the Senate. It'll be interesting to see. I don't, I don't foresee them um, for instance, I think you'd have to probably cut the K through 12 funding that we we put in, and put it into higher ed if you want to make a dent in that number, um, or the transportation piece. And I think that's going to be hard to do on a large scale. I could see them cutting some of it out of either one of those lines, but I don't, that's not going to hardly touch the cut that's that's been that's been put into higher ed. And as you're as you're all aware, this is a balanced budget state, so we have to ensure that we're doing the best across the board. And I think. Um, it's not thrilling because we're all we all support higher ed, um, but we we ask that all the schools across the state that are publicly funded take a, a little bit of a haircut and and uh, I think the house did the best we could to to uh, implement a plan that made that haircut maybe a little bit uh, less in, less impactful. Do you think this may spur discussions about making sure that higher ed is funded with something other than general revenue? And I know that that would probably take maybe putting something on the ballot or a pretty deep policy discussion. But it just seems like as long as as colleges and universities are funded by general revenue dollars, which is kind of the shorthand I used for money that can be moved from place to place, they're going to be experiencing this type of thing whenever bad budgets occur. Whereas if there was a more direct source of revenue that would come through some sort of fee or tax, maybe they would be less impacted by fluctuating economies. Yeah, I don't... You know, there haven't been any discussions on that that, I, that I'm aware of uh, that thinks of a new funding model for higher ed. 
Uh, I think higher ed's going to change a lot in the near future too. You know, I've, I've uh, the my friend who ran Launch Code uh, the last couple of years and started it with uh, significant success. He's moved on to this other this other venture in higher ed, and he's discussed it with me a number of times how technology is really going to change higher ed. And I think you're, we're going to look at a model for educating our kids that's going to look significantly different even over the next decade with online courses, um, virtual education. You know, you have Harvard Harvard alone has so many of their courses online, the training you can receive for free online is pretty incredible. And so I don't, I don't know there's been any significant conversations on funding models that look different than where we are, um, but I think higher ed will change significantly over, over the, probably the next 10, 20 years in a way that's gonna revolutionize how we educate our kids. Um, but again, I, don't, I haven't heard anything about how we change that revenue model. Uh, more broadly, one of the things that's been talked about, especially from the Democratic perspective, is the reason one of the one of the reasons I don't want to say it's the reason that the budget situation is not terribly good is a drop in corporate income taxes, which has been facilitated by some legislation that was passed a couple of years ago. Um, is there any kind of thought within the Republican caucus about altering some of those past bills that have been blamed for the drop in revenue? to maybe make the revenue situation a little bit better? Or is that just not a feasible option because of either the Hancock Amendment or philosophical disagreements about whether that's the right course? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's feasible for another number of reasons. One, we just had the Department of Revenue in a committee not too long ago discuss how that isn't the issue everybody thinks it is. That bill that we passed that everybody says is costing $200 million a year. Well, it <laughs> is, <laughs> but go, go ahead. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, from from uh, our perspective, I think that uh, it's not the issue that everybody thinks it is. And um, and so I don't, I don't think there's going to be, especially this year, I don't think there's going to be a significant change to that, that piece of legislation that's going to bring in a significant level of revenue that's going to change the model. And um, I also think that that's going to that corporate revenue, the corporate tax revenue is going is going to um, balance out here in the next in the next couple of years. You know, it, it can only be lowered forever based on um, the economy and how it's moving. And I think the economy does impact what those corporate revenues do look like uh, on a on a large scale. And I think, you know, we've had we have, we've had an economy that's hit our budget in a significant way. And so um, we're seeing the results of that now. And, and, well, well and, yeah, I know sorry. there. Uh, qu- quick thing, I know there's been discussion about a follow-up bill, though, um, either to uh, make additional cuts in corporate, or I mean, some of this has to do with the tax cut. That's the separate tax cut uh, for individuals and corporates that's supposed to start going into effect later this year. Have you been involved in any of that, uh, or or is the general view, like you just said, that if the economy does better and and business does better, then everybody benefits and this won't be an issue? I think, just to be honest, from the the conversation I'm having in the building, I think that uh, we're going to stay the course with where we are and move forward with what we, with the situation we have. I don't think there's been a whole lot of discussion of zeroing out uh, corporate income taxes. I haven't, at least I have. I mean, there's certainly always that discussion, but it's not getting legs, at least at this point in the session. Um, and I think that uh, we're going to stick where we are. Yeah, and by the way, the bill that I was referring to further, it's it's a bit of a complicated bill, but it's been described by Crystal Thomas of the Joplin Grove is the law allowed corporations to exclude income made in out-of-state sales or services when paying their Missouri corporate or corporate sure. income taxes. And I just want to point out, I pointed this out again, this was passed by an overwhelmingly large margin and 
including a lot of Democrats. Yeah, because the the belief at the time, and I'm not justifying it, was that based on the figures they had, it was we were talking 20 or 30 million a year, not sure. not the 200. And so a lot of people, uh, a lot of legislators, uh, including outgoing Governor Jay Nixon, were caught off guard when um, this past year uh, it really hit hard. And I did a story on this last fall, and uh, it was, you know, the impact was much bigger than what people had thought. Sure. And and I'm, I think I'm over the opinion that I don't, from what I'm gathering, and I'm not in these conversations on this particular issue, I've heard very little about it, but I think we're going to get to the end of the session and there's not going to be a whole lot of movement on, on a change in that. Um, and there's a number of Republicans that um, that that have had the conversation, but I, I don't see the movement myself. In the last few minutes that we have here, I do want to get your impressions of the governor. We've been asking all of our guests about how they feel Governor Greitens is doing in its first few months. Um, he obviously signed Right to Work, which is a law that bars unions and employers sure. from requiring workers to pay dues. That was a longstanding priority of many Republicans and business groups. I, I know that there's probably going to be a flurry of bills that go to his desk in the next couple of months. So I'm, I'm holding off by saying that's the only thing that's been done or that's the only thing that will be done because we all know that that's not going to be the case. But what have you kind of thought of how he's handled his first few months, how he's handled the legislature, how he's dealt with Republicans? Because I'm guessing I'm getting a sense that some Republicans are happy with what he's doing and others sure. are not so happy depending on the issue i'd like i'd like to hear your take on that sure well on the day of the recording of this by the way it's his birthday so i'd say happy birthday governor Greitens. <laughs> uh that's that's uh, kind of fascinating yeah um secondly i would say i've really liked how he's how he's handled most uh, most everything so far i mean we're three months in you know this is this is a new uh, a new situation we have a governor uh that hasn't been in a governing role before so there's there's um there's certainly a learning curve, but you know the transitioning of fifty-five thousand dollars, fifty-five thousand employee state government transitioning all these departments from a from a uh, Democrat governor to a Republican governor. These are significantly uh, uphill task, and so I've appreciated his uh, his work on those things. And I think he kind of you know he comes into a great situation. He has Republican supermajorities in the House and the Senate. You know, for the most part, his his uh, work will be getting priorities done through his office, but also signing conservative legislation that we're that we're trying to send to the desk. I think uh, Senator Richard and Senator Kehoe are going to push some more conservative things through the Senate here in the last couple of weeks. Um, ideally, uh, send them back to us. We'll get them to the governor. Um, so for the most part, I've really, really appreciated the, the work that's been done so far. And uh I think he's going to turn out to be a governor that has significantly shifted, in, in my opinion, in a positive way, the state of Missouri to a very pro-business, pro, -business, pro um, uh, driving the economy forward in, in a way that's that's going to make a lot of Missourians proud. I know that there, that there were one complaint about Governor Nixon's approach to legislature is that he was very hands off and didn't sure. talk with a lot of Republicans a lot. I think that that has changed to some extent. We see occasional reports of the governor talking to the like the Republican Senate and House caucus. But I also got a sense his insertion into the debate over pay raises in the Senate got a lot of senators really upset. I know it was a lot more unanimous in the House. Sure. But how do you kind of explain those kind of differing dynamics? Because on the one hand, it's hard for people to complain about Nixon being absent and then complain about <laughs> Crichton's being too unabsent. Sure. But I could also see the argument that 
he's kind of sticking his nose where he doesn't belong in some instances. What's yeah, kind of your feeling on that? And I think I think this is just part of the learning process. I, you know, I think you you as a governor, you're not going to do everything perfectly. And and this building is the this building is um, it's about relationships. And I think the good thing, the encouraging thing is seeing the governor building those relationships in the building. And there are going to be some hiccups in that for for sure, as he has priorities and there may be separate priorities in the Senate. Um, or in the house or wherever you're going to have maybe some some areas where he hit a roadblock, but I think he's he's going to figure his way out. Um, he's going to build the relationships he needs to build to be an effective governor, um, and and I think that stuff is it, it's a learning process for the most part. And I think people, as you'll see with with some of this going forward, I think um, hopefully they'll move on from that stuff and realize we're all trying to do the best to make Missouri a better place. And um, and I think he'll figure that stuff out. We just want to thank you for coming on our show through the magic of radio, and we, we look forward to having you back in the subsequent months and years. Um, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would the great people of Callaway County and of Oz, if they want to follow you on Twitter, follow you on Twitter? At Travis Fitzwater. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. Those volumes at a time